Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Let's Not Be Lazy Filmmakers. We have a really special episode today. All our episodes are special, but we had some initial trouble with Zoom this week, so we decided to record this one in person. Our guest, or in this case, our host, because we were at his house, is none other than the great Paul Cowan, who made some really amazing films, such as Westeray, a film about a mining disaster in eastern Canada, among others. It's a long one today, but I really encourage you to stick through to the end because once Paul gets going, he really has a lot of insight and great stories from war zones, documenting the porn industry, and some really good advice for filmmakers in general. Come with us this week as we visit Paul Cowan, proof that we're not lazy filmmakers. So where are we going? We're going... Uh... We have the map up. I think we have to go that way. Uh, okay, let's check the map. We're lost. Is this Clark? 350 meters. Which way? Back the way we came. You're joking. Nope. Don't be mad. We got lost. We no, it's okay. I, I, don't, I don't have much time, so okay. I have to make it relatively quick. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. Okay. Good. You know Noah? Noah? Hi, Paul. Paul. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come on in. Thank you. How did you get into filmmaking? Because you're also an accomplished uh, fine artist and, and you do woodwork and... Well, I was actually in engineering at uh, Cornell in the United States and I hated engineering. I hated it from day one and I was oh. and, and I even left for a while and came back, but I figured, you know, I owed it, owed it to my father to graduate. So I hung in there and uh, just as a job, um, I started shooting videotapes for the home economics school. You know, like the first one I did was a, how to do a home basting stitch. And, and, you know, we did cooking, we did cleaning the bathroom floor and stuff like that. And I w would shoot. And the first time I got a camera in my hands and looked through it and started shooting, I just, wow, I love this. I love this. And I don't care what I'm shooting. I just love it. And, and the, uh, the teacher, he said to me, he said, you know, I've had a, a bunch of people who've done this job and nobody can shoot like you. And I just, and that's all it took. I said, whoa, I've got some talent. <laughs> I mean, some talent. I could shoot somebody washing the floor. Um, but anyway, literally, that's, that's how it started. I mean, I'd always had a great interest in watching films, but it never occurred to me to make them. But then as I, once I got a camera in my hands and saw, you know, what a cut was, what a close-up was, you know, what you could say by doing a wide shot or a pan or all of that stuff, I just loved that. I just, I, I, I became obsessed with it. So um, I, I did graduate in engineering and... and and then you told your dad you want to be a filmmaker. Yep. What happened? What was that like? It was not not, <laughs> not easy. I had a very tendacious um, relationship with my father, to, to say the least. But anyway, um, I chugged on, and and um, but it was too late to do anything about it when I graduated. It was somewhere around that time when I really said, "That's it. I'm going to do this." And, and, and instead, myself and two other guys, we headed off to go around the world. That was our, that was our thing. How old were you, Paul? Uh, maybe 21. And, and um, 
So we started, and, and as with most endeavors like that, we got stalled. And, and we got stalled in a, a French ski resort where we had jobs. And, um, and, and one of the friends was, a, was the starting tackle on the, on the Cornell football team. He was a huge guy. And we used to get in, in great fights with the, uh, with the owner of the hotel. And the other two guys didn't understand any French, and I was pretty fluent in French at that time. And um, at one time, she was yelling at us. We, the big guy was carrying furniture for her uh, from one room to another. He was carrying this big commode, and she was screaming at him. So, you know, like they, there was doors that opened to the outside world, you know, in, in, in a, this big French chalet. So he took this commode, he walked out on the balcony, and he threw it over the balcony. You know, it was like three stories up, and it, it splintered all over the place. And so we were fired. And so then we went down to Rome. So, oh, okay, so one of my jobs was to go and buy food for, for, for the hotel for breakfast. I go down and get the baguettes and whatever at five o'clock in the morning and bring them. And so I, I had a credit card with the uh, epicerie in town. And so we just, we had a Volkswagen bus and we loaded up the Volkswagen bus with all the food we could fit in it. And we just headed off to Rome, hoping that the gendarmes weren't going to catch us before we got across the border. But anyway, so we get to Rome and, and, and one of the guys, his father was a, was a uh, he was the president of the American Stock Exchange at the time. And, and they had all these fancy people staying at their home. One of them was, was, the, was the producer of, I, can, I, I believe it was called I Can See It Now with Edward R. Murrow. I don't know if you, you guys probably would have never heard him. He was the premier TV journalist of his era. I mean, Edward, you should look up Ed, Edward R. Murrow and just listen to him. Anyway... So I'm talking to this guy, and he's telling me what he does, and he says, and I say to myself, <laughs> that's it. I want to make those kind of, I want to make documentaries, and I want to make those kinds of stories about real things. I mean, I never really saw myself as a theatrical filmmaker or anything. I didn't have much interest in that, although I loved watching theatrical films. So I said, okay, that's it. Uh, I, I mean, this actually happened over about a week uh, in discussions with this man. I mean, he saved my life because I wasn't sure exactly how to approach f filmmaking. And, and so I, I, I looked up in, in all, all the film schools in the United States, because there were virtually none in Canada at that time. And, and um, most of them emphasized dramatic filmmaking like USC and UCLA and all that. I didn't want to do that. But Stanford, Stanford actually had in, in, in their synopsis a, a, a real emphasis on documentary filmmaking. And I said, that's it, I'm going to go to Stanford. And, and it was the only school I applied to. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, why the hell would I get in there, right? Like I'm an engineer. But I, I, I mean, I, I was, I, in my engineering, I combined a special program that two of us took where we combined fine arts with engineering. So we did a lot of product design and stuff like that. And so I sent that off to, 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 to Standard. And all I can say is I got in. And I don't know how I got in. Was this, was this a master's or an undergrad degree? No, it, it was a master's degree. A master's degree. 
and and uh, with an emphasis on documentary filmmaking, and and so. Um, Do you have uh, your master's, Evan? I quit. You did. Uh, <laughs> anyway, in filmmaking, um, and I got there and loved it, loved every minute of it, and and um, loved the people who were there, and and you know there were some great people there, and and. Uh, in fact, I have to tell you a story. I mean, so I, I had, you know, we had TAs and professors, but one of the TAs was a guy by the name of David Peoples, right? And he was, he was a really nice, nice guy. And, 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 and he, and it, yeah, I got to know him. And, and at one time he said to me, just out of the blue, he said, hey, I've written this script, and um, will you read it? And the script was called The Cut Whore Killings. Whore, Cut Whore Killings. Okay, and I read it, and I was blown away by this script. I just, it was tremendous. I couldn't believe it. And, and, and so I, I, I told him that, and went, you know, went, went on, and, 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 then, and then graduated. And, and the, the, the day I graduated, I, got, I had this tiny little car, a Honda 600, they don't even make them anymore. And I put everything I owned in that little thing, and I drove to Los Angeles. I said, I'm just going to start there. I didn't, I didn't know anybody. Did you have your master's? Did you have a thesis? Did you have a film that you did? I had a film, yeah. Okay. We had to do a film. Okay. And I, I, I did a film. Where is it? Can we see it? No, I don't I have no idea where it is. What was it? What was your, what was your thesis? It, well, it, 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 was, um, it was a film that tried to convince people to give money to Stanford. Stanford. Hmm. But it was called Gift Horse. And it was like... Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, and it was a funny, stupid film uh, <laughs> that was supposed to attract donors to, to to Stanford, and Stanford paid for it, and they took one look at it and they said, "Well, we can't use this." But <laughs> the film professors all liked the film, so I graduated, and and uh, I have no idea where it is now. And and so I did get to I did I did get down to Los Angeles and and uh, my first job was syncing up sound for a golf show where the the sound man was incompetent and he hadn't properly slated things that was back in the days when you were doing this and so there was there was you know there was I mean all you heard was a click as the club hit the ball and then a few seconds later. You know, it was that was it, and that and I had miles of footage, and I had to try to find the sound that went with that. Any anyway, so before I, the days of computers. And yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. Now, now you That's can it. see the waveforms and you can match them up. Yeah. Anyway, I just that was my first job, and and then but then I I just I just started shooting. I said I went to people and I said I can shoot. You know that's what I, that's what I can do, and I, I got a ton of work. I mean, I was shooting, uh, you know, like ABC Sports we did did a ton of sports, like but really good, good photography. You know, so I was on on did that and was flying all over the place, going to interesting things and shooting athletes. You know, we shot the NBA, we shot you know skiing everything. And, but, but, you know, I realized that I didn't, that's not what I wanted to do. I loved shooting, but I wanted to make films. And who, who was the coolest uh, athlete that you ever met? Uh, I would say Arnold Palmer. 
Arnold Palmer, I mean, he was one. This, the, these films were all owned by the big, the big company called ICM that owned all these athletes. And, you know, so they owned all the films made and everything. They were the first company that actually saw you could make money from, from athletes. And, and uh, so, yeah, he was, he was nice. But I mean, professional athletes are not interesting people. They're just wonderful athletes, but they're not interesting people. Kind of, kind of like astronauts. No, I mean, why would they be? They've been doing sports since they were four years old and probably left school at 10. And, and, but anyway, it didn't matter. It was fun. I was young. It was fun. You know, we were hopping on planes, going hither and thither, and, and, and uh, just having a really good time. But, you know, I, I didn't want... Didn't want that to go on forever either. So you know, after a couple of years, I started, I started, uh, you know, writing films and things like that. And 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 I, so I got a job with a small production company where I became the assistant producer on a on a drama in L.A. In L.A. Yeah, and 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 so I actually put ten thousand dollars of my own money, and that's all the money I had. In the world, it's a lot of money in this. Uh, yeah, it was. It was uh, absolutely and and cut cut to the end. I lost every penny of it. But there you go. I mean, I, I got an interesting experience being on a film, uh, being the AD, and 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 but also our little company went, you know, produced this thing and everything, and and. Back then, if you were making a feature film for less than a million dollars, you didn't have to, you know, you could hire IATSE people, you know, with, with, without paying them IATSE wages, okay. essentially. And, and so, yeah, I mean, we put a crew together of 30 or 40 people and shot this thing. And I'm sure everybody, it was, it got big distribution. It was, what, what, what was it called? It was called um, Best Friends. You can still see it out there. I mean, it's what year? Uh, it would have been seventy-two, probably. Best friends, nineteen seventy-two. Best friends. Okay. Yeah. Nineteen seventy-two. Best friends. Paul it, Cowan. No, I was just an AD on it. But oh, I, it, it did me a lot of good because I realized I don't want to do that. I don't want to do feature films. They don't interest me. Really? With feature films, all you're doing is I, all you're doing is you're making you're making what you've already dreamed of doing, and now you're realizing it. And I wanted to go and shoot documentaries because that was always exciting. You didn't know what, what you were going to find. You didn't know what adventures you were going to have. At least I thought that. I would, I would argue that there's a difference between like serendipity and stress and adventure in making documentaries. Well, of course there is. I mean, stress goes, stress goes along with, yeah, not knowing which way you're going to go. Uh, but that was the kind of stress I enjoyed. I enjoyed that stress. And once I decided I wanted to do documentaries, I mean, L.A. was not the place to do it, for sure. There was, there was one company, Wolper Productions, uh, that, was doing, that was doing documentaries and doing good documentaries. But that was it. And, and so I kept trying to get into the film board. And... Uh, I, and I remember once I, 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 I one, of, one of our teachers down there was from the film board. Which film board? 
The National Film Board. The Can Canada. So you were living in L.A., you're wanting, you're wanting to do documentary, and you're wanting to come back to Canada because of the prestige of the film board. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I, I mean, yeah, there was just no question in my mind that's what I wanted to do. So I, 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 and I lived in Toronto. My parents lived in Toronto anyway. So one time I came home for Christmas, and I went down to Montreal and got an interview with Colin Lowe. Because they used to be based out of... Totally, NFB was in Montreal, right? It still is. Yeah, it's but they still, but so. they also have. Okay. Yeah, they they've got branch off. They moved most of it over there, no. to Toronto, didn't they? Most of it's in Montreal. Well, they. I'll tell you about that a little bit later because the film board is so much smaller. Yeah, let's it talk about be, you. Let's not talk about. It that. used to be nine hundred people. Right. When I walked in the door, and you know, when I left, it was down to two hundred people. And uh, in, anyway, um, you were interviewed by Colin Lowe. Yeah. Wow, so this is now, okay. Who's that? Stephen Lowe's father. He was a god. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was just a god. But anyway, so Colin, and, and this one feature film where I had been the, uh, the AD, it was what we called at the time a tits and terror picture, mm -hmm. which, which today would, would be on like slasher. 7 o'clock television. A slasher film. <laughs> Not yeah. even a slasher film, just, just kind of yeah. cheesy sex but but i mean no, nothing that nothing that you couldn't see today on evening television right. i mean and um so i so colin asked me what i what i had done and and i basically told him i mean i'd done some other stuff but i i said that was the last thing i did and 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 I told him it was what we called a tits and terror picture, and I think he, he just about then ushered me to the door. So that was, you know, I didn't make a big hit with, 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 with Colin. <laughs> so I, I, I left and went back to L.A. and, and uh, working away. It was easy to get work at that time. I mean, just, e I, you know, I didn't, never had a tr tr trouble getting work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so then one day one of my, uh, one of my colleagues from, from the Stanford film class who was a Canadian and had gone to the film board um, came, you know, was in L.A. and, and he came and saw me and, and, he, and he said, I, I would like you to shoot my next picture for, 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 for the film board. And it was about the Canadian... Uh, Downhill ski team, what they called the crazy Canucks. Podborski. Podborski, Reed, you know, hmm. all, all, all those guys. And um, I said, I, I love skiing. I had been a fanatical skier all my life. So I said, sure, I'll do it. You also had the history of sports. Yeah, and I, 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 and I, knew, I knew how to deal with athletes. I mean, they're not that hard, but I'd spent a lot of time with them. So, How old were you at that time at that point? I don't know, maybe 25 or something, like 26 or something like that. So you get hired by the NFB to come in and be a deal. Yeah, and, and to literally travel around the world. I mean, we went to South America in the summer. We skied Portillo and, you know, all, you know, all South America. I mean, that was summer training. Then we did the World Cup circuit in Europe and in North America, skiing in, you know, like A-list resorts with the best skiers in the world. <laughs> you know, just skiing with the best skiers in the world and making a film about them. And getting paid. And getting paid. It sounds like a pretty good vacation. Oh, my God. And, and I sort of thought, well, that's what you do, right? That's, that's filmmaking. That's all I wanted. So, so that, that, 
that went fine, and and um, uh, the film was a good film. It was it was this guy Giles Walker who made the film, and and I shot it, and it was it was good, and. Um, so then, as soon as I got back to the film board, I, I, I started proposing things, films. Be, because the film, you know, the, the Olympics were coming to Canada in 1976. And, and there was just a ton of money to make films about athletes. Hmm. You know, it, it, because there was, everybody wanted films about athletes. Right. You know, and, and all of a sudden, athletes were it. And, and because, in the whole year before the Olympics, anybody could get a film about an athlete made. So I got $300,000 for my first film from the film board to make wow. a film. Wow, that's a lot of money now. That's a lot of money now, and it was a ton of money then. And, and, uh, and it, anyway, so I made that film, and they liked it, and, and, uh, and anyway, one thing led to another. So, did, so Colin Lowe then saw your... <laughs> Oh yeah, the crazy Canuck film was like, okay, maybe I should reconsider the work of this young man. Yeah, yeah Colin. I mean, Colin's a good guy. He's not going to hold. He's not going to hold a kind of grudge against you for for very long. I mean, he was he was a he was a, but Colin was a real artist. I mean, he really was an artist. And uh, was IMAX? When was IMAX a thing? Sorry, I'm, I'm. IMAX became a thing. Well, it, it was, you see, Roman Kreuter worked at Film Board. He was a producer, and Roman Kreuter was one of the developers of the IMAX system and one of the owners of IMAX. And, and so Roman, I mean, but Roman actually liked the Film Board better than private sector better, even though he was a, a millionaire from, from that. And anyway, they eventually sold it entirely to whoever, like, whomever bought IMAX. IMAX. And, and, Canadian uh, technology. Yeah, I don't I don't even know who, who it was. But but Roman mostly Yeah, I mean the film board was an amazing place at that time. I mean people were bouncing off the walls with ideas and 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 no idea was too wacky for the film board to give it a shot and, and uh, there was a lot of money. Um, Canadian government was giving the film board a lot of money because it was a federal presence in Quebec. And, mm -hmm. the, and, the, and the government really liked that, right? And, Interesting. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, all those things mattered. I mean, and, uh, and also, also the private sector at that time in Canada was very small and not very well developed. So it was no, it was no countervailing handout for money like it is today. They were kind of the only game in town. Yeah, the film board and you know, it was really the game in town. And and the, I mean the film board like you have to remember, it started as a propaganda uh, or or organ for the Canadian government during during the war. And after the war was over it, it just transformed into a uh, into a documentary filmmaking or, or organization, and and you know because and they had a lot of experience shooting with sixteen millimeter cameras and like not, I mean, of course everybody today thinks everybody knew how to do it, but they didn't. I mean, back then the film board, the film board was the if you wanted to make a documentary or even a, a an experimental feature film, you went to the film board. And who was watching all these films? Because like today, it's like there's so much content, but back then it was a t totally different landscape. 
Yeah, there wasn't. I mean, they used to say, you know, like the film board's distribution was, you know, a bunch of people would put films in the trunk of their cars and drive around to little churches and, you no know, kidding. farming communities and that and get out their projector, uh, their, their, their screen and put it up and project a film. It was really grassroots. Oh, really grassroots. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it really, really was. And so it wasn't even on like TV or anything? No, like that. it wasn't on TV. I mean, uh, look, there might have been something about the Queen when the Queen came to Canada or something like that. That's the kind right. of thing they might do. You know, something approaching of, of, of what do they call them, film? Um, oh, I don't know, that you used to see before movies. Used to see, used to yeah, see little yeah, yeah. five and ten minute That's documentaries right. before yeah. movies, and a lot of those were made by the film board. Okay. So the 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 good thing was that I mean they were not classic works of art, but they gave young people like myself a way to get a ton of experience quickly, hmm. and and we were also we the National Film Board was also doing all just about all of the sponsored films for the Canadian government. Like if, if a particular department wanted a film made about its thing, then we would do it. And I, I did a couple of sponsored films for people. Nothing wrong with that. And, it's like and, the golden days of the film board. Yeah, and, and, extraordinary. And you learned very quickly. You, you know, certainly the mechanics of filmmaking. Right. You you know you learned that very 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 quickly. Have and, you done the majority of your films with the NFP? Well, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was at the NFB for almost 40 years, I think. Can you write, can you write me a letter of reference to, get to the NFB? It's like a model they they don't them. hire anybody anymore. They haven't hired no, anybody. No, no, they don't hire just to sort of get my next film in on me. Can you? If, can if, you I, I wouldn't even know who to write to. Paul. Wait, they, they don't hire anybody anymore. Why is that? Well, they just, I mean, back when I was there, there were filmmakers on staff, editors on staff, mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. Um, because at the beginning, there weren't a lot of people out there who wanted to make films, really? who had any experience making films. So one of the film board's jobs was to teach these, these young people how to do it. And so once they taught them, they wanted them to stay there. Okay. And, and uh, it was great. And, and uh, so, I, I mean, at first I was one of what they called phony freelancers. In other words, we, we were basically, we went from one film to another film to another film, but we weren't on staff. And, and it, it didn't bother me. You know, I was... Because you were doing what you loved. I was doing what I wanted. Yeah. And, and, and the film board absolutely believed in that. You find your own voice. And they gave you the chance to mess up. That's what, that's what they don't do today. Because mm. it's too expensive. Right. Like, if, if you did a lousy film, that wasn't going to be the end. I mean, it didn't help, but you know, you know, if you weren't out, uh, if you did two lousy films, that wasn't. Maybe you were out three, and you were definitely gone. But anyway, you could you could make a. Saw, as long as they saw a spark of something in there, they would they would keep betting on you. And that, that from every, I mean, even in the latter half of my 40 years or so there, I mean, I saw that go out the window. I mean, you, you, you couldn't make a mistake. What do you mean it, when it, you couldn't make a mistake? Like the, the Well, if you made a mistake, changed, you were or? never going to make a film there again. Okay. Define mistake. Well, made a bad film. Yeah. Define a bad film. Uh, oh, 
Look, it's, it's like saying, <laughs> I may not know what a bad film is, or, or I may not know how to describe it, but everybody knows what it is when I watch it. Right. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't some, some bad films that had some artistic merit. But, but actually, I mean, the film board was pretty good. The film board was pretty good. Like, the, the, the film board was not um, sort of, you know, it had to, it, it had to appeal to everybody. If you made a quirky, um, original film uh, that, that had something to say, you were going to be fine. So, you know, I mean, Norman McLaren, and, you know, and, and I mean, it, 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 it uh, because TV hadn't, hadn't, you know, TV wasn't important. Like, you weren't, they weren't going to worry about ratings because there weren't ratings. They weren't going to worry right. about whether you got, you know, a prime time hour or not at that, at that time. Is that what changed? Is that oh, what yeah, changed? yeah. That's, that's what changed actually, the whole culture. Sure. Okay. We were, sure. we were born too late. Yeah. <laughs> Filmmaking <laughs> became too expensive. Right. And, and uh, even though, you know, as I said, we got pretty good budgets. But, but um, and, and, and too dependent upon TV saying they liked it. Right. And, and would show it. And, and I, I, it's funny, we went through a period where TV was everything. And then, then they realized that's not what we're about. Hmm. And, and, and they really pulled back from that after about 10 years. Which, going, year, which, which period was this, Paul, in terms of uh, dates, curiously? Well, I would say, you know, in the 80s and 90s, okay. they were the MTV. They were really into in, into TV. And it, look, it's not that you're they're they're not now. Like if if and honestly, I don't know that much about the film board right now. So I, I can only speak about it when I left, mm -hmm. which was 10 years ago. That's what we want to hear about. Yeah. So uh, I mean. You know, like if you came and, and, and you had CBC, you know, wanting to broadcast it and willing to put a couple hundred grand in it, yeah, you, obviously you're going to stand a much greater chance of getting it, getting film board money than, mm -hmm. than if you didn't. But, but they, there were certainly people who they knew, filmmakers who they knew the, their films will never get on television, but we think they're worth supporting. Wow. So... They did. And I don't know where they stand on any of that now. Do you have a, a favorite film that you made that you look back on fondly when you were at the NFB? Oh, I, I really liked Westray. I, 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 I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the film, but I really enjoyed making it. Why? And, uh, Why? Because I, I got to spend so much time down in that community of Westray and, and really getting to know the people so that they totally trusted me and... and, yeah. and uh, you know, when I was shooting it, I could get anything I wanted because they so trusted me in that town. I, I mean, I remember one time I was I was shooting a scene where they were racing to the uh, what what one of the and and I used the real people as actors. This is the film just for the listeners. This is the film about the mining disaster. Yeah, the mining disaster at Westray. At Westray. Twenty-eight miners were killed in the eighties, I think. And 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 and, and we, we we dealt with. Like like all the 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 widows or brothers or fathers would have played themselves and and uh, the union people played themselves etc. It was a really interesting film I thought yeah. 
and yes. and uh, but but like in I remember one time we're shooting a scene on the on the road where this woman is sort of racing to to the mine site. She's just heard there's been an explosion there, and and she knew her husband was underground. So she and and as we stopped, you know, we were we we, we were changing angles or something like that, and and and, and I heard I heard. It was sort of on, on a little hill outside of the town, and I heard, uh, I could hear microphones down in the town broadcasting, and I, I could hear horns honking, and then I said, oh, shit, I know what that is. That's, there was a parade going that day uh, for something or other. You know, they had all the fire trucks out and the police cars out. And I said, okay, I said, my, my production man, go down to the town, tell them I need like five or six fire engines and a couple of police cars. We really want to shoot a scene with them right now. No kidding. He goes down to town in like a half an hour. They're up there. And so we shoot it with them. Because they all knew what we were doing. And so they were happy to right. help. How did, how did you build, build that trust with the people? Spent a long, long time there. I, I spent months there before I shot a, f a foot Really? Film. Yeah. And I could wow. do that back then. You, 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 well, I mean, months over time, I right, wasn't there, right, okay. but I spent several trips down there. Just talking to the people? Just, just talking to the people. I, I would not even think of going in there with a the camera. And I didn't think about going in there with a the camera until, until I knew them inside out. Wow. And, and, um, so, and, and that's something that you just you couldn't do today, certainly in the private sector, they would want you to kind of walk in the front door with a movie camera. Yeah, and have a camera around your neck. Yeah, absolutely. The whole time. Because you're only going to get two chances to shoot this. Yeah. So, and, 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 and I also knew, like, it, it, when I was filming that, it was three years after the explosion. So, you know, everybody knew the story, and everybody knew what happened, so I had to be able to create something that was totally different and and deeper than than what had been on the news, and like there was a lot of rumblings about about incompetence and and, and sweetheart deals between the mine owners and the and the uh, you know the provincial safety officials, right. and et cetera, et cetera. So I I, uh, I I mean it was it, it, it was never a question. I mean it was just the way we made films back then. I said, well, well, you know, I mean, I I have to have spent a, a lot of time with these people before they're going to let me inside this world. That's incredible. And 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 so like nobody nobody said, well, you ready to shoot? I mean, come on. And no, it's just, or, or if, no, in fact, I have to tell you, there, there was, e even, even before that, so I proposed this film, the film board's really for it, and, and uh, then they go to the CBC, and the CBC says, uh, no, we're not interested, because we did our own film right after the explosion, and they right. did. Yeah. And, you know, it was a, it was all the facts. It, it was an expanded newsreel. Right. And and they said, so we're not interested. So the film board came to me and said, well, okay, we'll let you make it, but it's, it's going to be a much smaller scale than what you'd thought. And so, I mean, they reduced the budget and everything. And I just said, I'm not interested in that. I'm not going to do that. No kidding. And I mean, imagine being able to say that. 
and not yeah. them saying, well, fuck you, and get out the door. No, I just thought, uh, I'm not going to do it. The, it's, it's, it's an insult to these people, and that's it. Wow. So they said, okay, it's over, and I said, okay, it's over. That's and it. I went on and made another film and mm -hmm. just forgot about it. And, and, and then there was another, you know, things went on, a couple of years passed, and there was a different executive producer there, and he had different feelings about it because he was actually from, from the, the Maritimes. And so he said to me at one time, he said, do you want to do that film? I said, yeah, but only the way, I'm, only the way I want to do it. Wow. And they said, okay. And that was it. And, and um, so, you, you, you know, we, we just, I like to think we knew what a good film was and we were willing to, to, to take some chances to get it. Right. And sometimes we were wrong too. I mean, you know, I'm not. And you weren't desperate, so desperate that you would just take it take whatever they would give you yeah and say oh well it, you know pays the bills for yeah a year or whatever that's really that's uh, that takes some some balls as an artist to do that yeah well i was just i was <laughs> maybe i was just too cocky at that time but i just i just uh i mean i just knew that the only thing that was going to make it different than any other other films it made is if we went you know, went very slowly and went very deep with those people. So, were you have you done most of your films as cameraman and director? Mostly, yeah. Isn't that challenging to do that? It, it is. It is a little bit, and sometimes I regret it because uh, I mean I could have done, I, I, I could have had better, in some ways, better results if I hadn't. But at the same time, I mean, I did a lot of of, of films. Um, where we were really moving fast, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I, re I remember going to, to Africa, um, and I, I had gone there with the idea of making a particular kind of film about the United Nations in the Congo, which was this very terrible situation of a failed country. And, and, uh, and I got there, and all of a sudden, um, a war broke out in the Aturi in the Northeast, and, and so I could, just, I could just say, that's it, we're doing this instead of that. I didn't, I didn't even ask anybody. Of course. And, and, uh, and, and we were only three people, so we could, get, we could get on most of their helicopters, get in and out quickly. So you had, you had a production manager and sound? No, just I, 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 I had my myself and an assistant camera person and sound, yes. and you mean because we were shooting films, so we, we got a lot of cases and everything and all that stuff, and and I mean, oh yeah, once I was, so I was in Israel, and there was a, a series that the film board made called War. I think it was seven episodes with Gwen with Gwen Dyer with Gwen Dyer, yeah, mm -hmm. and and I. I did two of those episodes, and one of them was about Israel and how the political state had grown up with the military or vice versa, and they were just totally interlocked. And, and I got to Israel. The weekend I got to Israel, Israel invaded Lebanon. This was in 1986. And so, you know, I called all the contacts that I had. I mean, I had spent a year sort of getting contacts within the military and all that. 
And none of them were available. They were all fighting or doing whatever, or they certainly weren't about to take my call. So I actually phoned the film board and I said, it's not going to work. I'm coming back with the crew. And they said, okay. And, and so, and then I'm, I'm sitting there in a bar and I meet, and, and there's this soldier beside me, an officer. I knew he was an officer. I mean, I knew he was a colonel. I knew just from, you know, seeing what his insignia was. And we started talking and I told him what I was here doing. And I told him what I wanted and why I couldn't get it. And he said, I'll take you into Lebanon. No way. <laughs> I, I said. <laughs> so this is, this is the value of going to the pub and talking yeah. to people. Yeah. Well, yeah, Probably. absolutely. And, and so I said, we're there. His name was Stashik Aronson. And so he was a colonel. Hmm. And so Stashik, uh, so he takes the three of us up. We, we go up to the, to the, to the Lebanese border. Were you, in, were you in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem at the time? I was in Tel Aviv at the time. Mm -hmm. And we go up to the border, it was about two hours up to the northern border. And then you get to the border and you know, there's, there's tanks and soldiers and everything everywhere. And, and, and he takes us to this place, he says, you gotta sign your name here. And I said, what's that for? And he says, well, it indemnifies the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, from you and, and worrying about you and getting you out if you get injured or whatever. And signing your life away. I said, okay. <laughs> and my assistant said, okay. And my sound man said, I won't sign. So I said to him, I said, okay. I said, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't planned. I'm, so you go back. Right. So he goes back to Montreal. And I found some Israeli sound man who, who would go in there. Wow. And, but he, he didn't speak English that well. <laughs> so it didn't help. Anyway, so, so, and, and so then I had to find, well, I mean, it's not enough to say there's a war going on there. You've got to say, well, what's the story? So there was a, a kibbutz on the, on the, on the frontier car called Kifar Gildi. And, and they, had been, they had been shelled a lot by rockets from Lebanon. And um, they were on a total war footing. And, and so I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll make this. This kibbutz is the center of the film, and as so, and, and soldiers at that time, they they would go in for two or three days, and they'd come back, and they'd take off their uniform and go work the gardens for a while, and then they'd go back on because everybody keeps, you know, their gun in their closet and their uniform there. They can mm -hmm. be called up in an hour's notice, and they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. So basically, that that kibbutz became the center of it, and I think. Two people were killed from that kibbutz, and a lot of guys injured. And, wow. and, and uh, in fact, the the, uh, the guy who was the head of the kibbutz was in a wheelchair. He had he had lost his legs in one of the previous wars. So it was it was so it was it, it that became the film. How long were you at the border? How long did it take you to make that film? I mean, were you in Israel? I think about a month, and and. Mo Kate was freaking out, of course, and Kate is uh, Paul's wife, and and because we 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 didn't have internet or anything or yeah, cell phones yeah. that I could make like one call a week, right? And and uh, so that that was not a good. Thing. So you, do you have kids too? Yeah, and, and, but they weren't there yet, were they? Uh, yes, they were. They were. Oh yeah. So you're the father with a wife and kids, and you're in the war zone. Uh, yeah, bad zone, bad 
bad, bad move. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so there, you know, there, there we went, and and uh, and I, I, that's what I liked about filmmaking of going somewhere and saying, okay, now I've got this complex situation that's happening before me. How do I make sense of it right. from a filmic standpoint? What's the story? And and that I always found fun, and and uh, sometimes worked out, and sometimes it didn't. There's something you don't get from narrative, also, just the the. Um this the discovery i guess yeah yeah and i i, I mean some people i you know some people do that very well it was much better than i do and and i, I mean they they insert themselves in it mm -hmm. and and uh i uh, like what's the name of that guy he's a sound man actually and 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 oddly enough he he and and he is a cameraman with him but the sound man who's really the director and he makes great films Anyway. American? Yeah. No, I think he's a Brit. Huh. Oh, anyway, it'll come to me. But, but I, and I actually tried that once. Uh, I was making a film about, about, about pornography, which was a stretch. <laughs> you weren't making pornography. It was about pornography. No, it was about pornography. Right. And, and um, so, I mean, I, I had a number of contacts in, in the porn world in, in New York, um, and, and uh, so one of them was a guy by the name of Michaela Capozzi, who is this really fascinating Italian lawyer who just loved pornography and calls himself a pornologist, and, and he takes tours. He's got this old beat-up Cadillac. He takes tours of the underground porn, pornology world of New York. And and I had of course taken his tour, and I, he became my contact into that world. And so th th then once it passed, as I was trying to boy speak about trying to find your way, f find the story. I mean, in something like the porn world, there's so many stories, mm. but but they're all the same thing. They're all kind of about depravity or scuzziness or right. or, or injury or you know whatever. And and um, this is before the internet, also probably. Oh yeah, Paul yeah. Was, what was the name of that documentary? Uh, Give me your soul. Give me your soul. And um, and and so, uh, oh yeah. So, so there was a time when, and and of course, Michaela would introduce me to other actual pornographers in New York, and and one guy I can't even remember his name. He. he he shoots about 150 a year, and and uh, so he's shooting. And and so Michaela phones me up that day, and he says, "This guy, uh, he says, he, he would like to use your 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 uh, hotel room tonight because he's just he's so tired of using the same location every time. He needs a new location." And so you know, I'm trying to get in with these guys, and so I say, "Of course, yes, of course, you can wow. use my room," and and so. Uh, so I remember we all go tramping in there, right? And, and I mean, everybody knows what a what a porn girl looks like, and you know, I mean, it was so obvious what we were doing as we marched across the lobby, and and I was sure we were going to get kicked out, but they didn't. So we went upstairs, and, and so I said, well, of course, I'll be filming you making this scene, and and uh, this was the I. I 
I think I might have seen two black and white 16 millimeter porn films in my life, you know, back in high school. And, and so I'm in, in the room there and they're starting getting down to it. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I said, <laughs> like, how do I, how am I going to use this? It had never occurred to me, like, how I was going to use this. I just liked the people. Uh, so then at a certain time, I just said, I, you know, I, like, I can't stay here because I could never use any of this footage. Um, so I left. But then I'm, I, I and the crew, we're, we're walking around outside the hotel, and I can see my hotel room up there. You know, we're waiting for five, six o'clock in the morning. The lights are still on. Finally, the lights go off, and they leave, and we go back in. And, and that was my introduction to porn. Right. And, and I mean, very quickly, you, you know, I'd seen, I, I was in, on so many porn shoots that, that you hardly noticed most of the people here aren't wearing any clothes. And they're fucking in this room and they're fucking in this room and they're doing this. And, and you, you literally, you don't notice it. You just don't notice it. It was quite a diverse career you had. Yeah. It was so, and I would always, and I think I went down to LA 10 or 11 times. So I, I started. So there, I, 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 my story was going to be just this cast of characters, and, and the central to it was a, a young girl by the name of Katie June Moon. That was her porn name. And, and, and I, I literally got her, started filming with her. She got off the bus at the L.A. film station and then filmed her entree into the porn world. Wow. And, and it was so weird. I mean, I, I, I just, it was so weird, and, and like Katie June was, she looked, I don't know, 12, maybe she was 16, I don't know. Wow. Um, and, and so she started working in it, and her mother comes out. And I, actually, I remember going to, we're driving to a film shoot in the afternoon, some, some, some big mansion in the Hollywood Hills. People rent their houses out for porn shoots and get a lot of money for it. And, and so, and, and her mother's going to come and she knows that her daughter does this, but she's never been on the set. So, she, so we get there and, and, you know, her daughter is doing a scene with this huge black guy and, and, and the mother's standing there like they were sort of right there and she's here. And, I'm just behind her, and so I can see them and also her in the foreground. She's totally freaking out, and I just, and, 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 but, okay, so it goes from that. Two weeks later, the mother was in a scene with her daughter. No. I kid you not. I kid you not. That, and, and that, I mean, I couldn't even film that. I, I mean, I just, I said, if I ever show this, People are going to be so disgusted at. So this is not in the film. No, it's not in. Wait, the wait, film. Wait, so yeah. her, her mother's in a in a, in a yeah. sex in a sex scene. Yeah, it was a, a, a foursome, the mother and the daughter and two guys. This is not where I thought that story was going. Yeah, this no. sort of story took a one eighty. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Maybe that was her way of protecting her. Uh, they're just all they're just all crazy people, and many of them, I th I think, are. It's good that you're so optimistic are, about the situation. Are, are, are a bit mentally stretched. Wow. Um, okay. And the title, I mean, it's all. But what explain the title of the film? Yeah. 
Well, because one of the guys in the film, sort of the godfather of porn, who's a guy who then was at least in her, in her, at least in his 60s. And he, he would have, like young girls like Katie June would come to town and he would offer them a room and he had quite a big house in Hollywood. And he wasn't trying to get laid or anything like that. He just, he just again, loved porn, loved porn girls and let them stay at his house while they got their feet wet, so to speak, in the business. And, and, uh, and, and is, it, what's his name, Bill? I can't remember. Um, so what was I saying? Oh. About the title of the film. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So yeah, so he used to say, uh, what was his thing? Yeah, he would say like, give me a give me a sixteen year old girl for a week, and I will take her soul. No, that's what he would say. Yeah, it's extraordinarily screwed up, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. Guy's the devil. Yeah. Wow. But he found, you know, he, he, he was... Pimp. Well, he was a pimp. And yeah, he was, absolutely. But I mean, he didn't, but he didn't make money from them. What was his angle in all of this? He was the devil. His angle was he liked <laughs> having this, this crowd of, like, oh, okay. of people around him. Older, older guy? Oh, yeah. As I say, he was oh, in his 60s. Sorry, sorry. Okay. And, and I mean, he had been in it all his life. So, um, and... He, yeah, I mean, they all have their claim to fame, and his, he used to say, he said, when I get, when I get a hard on, he said they could come at me with a sledgehammer, and I, I could keep a hard on. That's what you need if you're a male in that business. Was that a project that you made where you'd like, you'd like head back to your hotel at night, and you're like, man, I need, I need like 10 showers, like this whole yeah, project is totally, just told. totally. And when I would come back to Montreal, I would just, I, I couldn't wait to get out of it. Hmm. And then, you know, like I wouldn't go back down again until, you know, maybe a month or so later, whenever, whenever, whenever anything was happening of importance with the characters. But it was an ugly world. It was an ugly world to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, but I would be excited to go back down there and film them because there was an interesting nexus between the porn world and the crime world. I mean, there was a mm. lot of, 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 yeah, heavy duty crime people. So you were, were, you were excited by the story? I was excited by the story. And the access. Yeah, and the access. Yeah. Yeah. The access was everything. And so, but. <laughs> And and that film actually it was it was shown on on CBC on Sunday night and ran forever and it was I believe their most most watched film of that year, right? It's probably the raciest thing on CBC at that time. Yeah, and 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 I, anyway, I I mean, I I I'm not proud that I made it. I just hmm. I don't know. What do you mean you're not proud? Well, I I mean. I think I could have done something better than made a film about porn, but I was just intrigued by it and at the time and 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 uh and and it wasn't it like sexuality today is so omnipresent in everything everywhere but back then and this was pro this was twenty 
25 years ago when, when it wasn't. And, and so, you know, to find this group of people for whom sex was more or less like it is today, just no, no big deal. Fuck 20 people this week, so what? And, and I mean, they all had interesting stories to tell. And, and, uh, but anyway, I did. <laughs> and, and, and that, that was, film was actually brought up in Parliament. No. Yeah, because I don't know how they got this, but the, the opposition... Uh, they were wondering why, why they're spending money on the... Well, no, that. no, they, they weren't. They, they said, how is it that Cowan got to take his, his wife to the big porn show in Las Vegas? Like every, every year, there's a big porn the, show. The AVN. Uh, yeah, yeah, AVN. I, mm -hmm. And, and it's, right. it's just right around the, the, the big technology NAB. Yeah, exactly. So you yeah. get... I read, I read an article AVN by uh, yeah. David Foster Wallace, which is all about that. Yeah, and I had gone there. I certainly did not take Kate. Oh. So, <laughs> but what, so part, they brought this up in Parliament because... Uh, they just wanted to get at the film board or, or get at the, the oh, liberals. So they're yeah. trying to yeah. shoot and, them down. Yes, yeah. and, and they may not, not like the film, but I was, it was all above board financially. Hmm. You've been someone who's you know, been supportive of, of my films and some of the stuff that I've done. But the first thing you ever said to me, and I've always remembered this was, man, I'm happy I'm not making films now. Well, it's harder, for sure. How so? Sure. How so? What, what is different? What's going on now that was different from when you were well, making films 10 years ago? I, I mean, today, either you're an extremely well-known filmmaker with a, with a lot of really good films behind you where, you know, you just get whatever money you need. I mean, from Ken Burns down, so to speak. Michael right? Moore. Yeah, those people. I mean, they, they could... And, and, and there's others, you know, who aren't as well known, but, you know, every time, you know, they would not have a hard time right. getting financed. But we're talking a handful. You know, that's it. Mm -hmm. and, Americans, and, mostly Americans. Mostly Americans, Yeah, sure. Guggenheim. And... Yeah. And there might be, I don't know, I don't even know if there's five in Canada of that stature. And, really? And, and so it's just, it's just hard. Be, 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 because now, now they want, Films, you know, like the kind of films that, that Ina makes, which which could cost more than a million dollars for a documentary. That's that's a big budget, and and uh, and she can get that. Ina Fishman, the I'm woman sure. who just produced the Vulcan, what the Vulcanologist, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was nominated for yeah. an Academy Award. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, What's that film called? Um, something love. Something of fire. Love. Oh. Fire, uh, uh oh, fire love. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Fire walk with me. <laughs> it's a three-word title, and it's very close to. It's a very clever title. I remember. It's, it's very one. close to theft of fire, which is the title of the um, Palestinian film. It's a, it's the film that uh, that she co-produced, I think, with uh, with France. This film, this volcanologist film. Yeah, movie. I don't know anything about the, the, the production. Right, of so you're sorry to digress. So you're talking about Ina, producer Ina Fishman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so she can, she can. Is that it? Fire, Fire of Love. Love. 
Fire of Love. I knew I had love. Yeah, available on Disney Plus. Yeah. 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 I, I'm sure they're making lots of money, and and good for them, you know. But but th those are few and far between. I mean, if you take the whole world, and and so. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, I say I think it's hard because everybody I know is moaning about not being able to get any money. So I'll stop moaning. I'll stop. It's brutal, though. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Anyway, it's it's just. But but I, I think that their best documentaries now are really really amazing. Yeah. There there are some amazing. really great ones. Yeah. Wow. The technology, the access. Yeah, know. and and all it's the access today. It's like because. It's not just the filmmakers, but the people. People are so used to other people having given so much access that it's not so scary to them. Right. Especially in the U.S., I've had when I've made films in the U.S., I can't believe the kind of access that I've gotten from law enforcement, to politicians. To totally, it's like it's like a it's a giant reality show in the U.S. Totally. I mean, I remember once I was filming in Kentucky a, a, a murder trial, and and uh, you know, so the trial's about to begin. And and uh, the judge is named Stumble, Judge Stumble, and 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 he, and so I had never met him before. I knew all the the lawyers on both sides and the participants, etc. But I just didn't know who the judge was going to be. So everybody's milling around, you know, waiting for things to get started. And and I go up to him and I introduce myself to Judge Stumble, and and I said. Uh, Tell me where you think I can be. And he said, boy, he was a Southern guy. He says, you can be anywhere you want. Wow. <laughs> and I said, okay. And so Judge Stumble's on the bench. I'm shooting over his shoulder. That's, I mean, <laughs> come on. And, and I, I, in Canada, you can't even get into a courtroom. No, you have to sign no so many papers. No one's returning your, your call. Yeah. Did you, Paul, what about release forms on your project? Because you were really like, you, you really yeah. became embedded in things like porn and war. What were you doing in terms of getting like a consent? Generally you do. Were you I, getting I, consent before you began filming or were you trying to get this consent? I mean, well, obviously I bring it up with people because sometimes, and certainly I've had it happen as I'm sure you have, once you bring up that word, all of a sudden they say, whoa, I, wait a second. And yeah. so you've got to you've got to bring it up, and and I generally will have have them sign a consent form. Uh, but I I mean, there's sometimes when I don't like I mean I remember we're in the Congo shooting, and and uh, you know there's little kids walking around with with submachine guns. I mean ten year olds. Yeah. And and. Uh, we're talking to them, filming them. I mean, I'm not going to ask one of those kids, obviously, for a, for a, you know, consent form. They're under 18. You'd have to ask their parents anyway. Yeah. So and you were able, you were still able to put that in, in, into films. Like absolutely. Yeah. And FBI lawyers would look at it and be like, "Yeah, well, it's, it's a war." And yeah. Yeah. So something sometimes like that, or or again, you know, like with the porn film. Let's say. Often there'd be quite a few people milling around, walking in and out of the. I mean, there there may be a, a, a scene going on here, but it's not going to stop people from. Excuse you me. Know, uh, excuse me. Uh, can you just stop the blowjob for I'm a second? Make, I'm making a coffee uh, here. <laughs> you know, it, because now I don't. I don't. Would not bother to get all those people, even though they've probably seen their faces. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. They're I mean, just incidental. Yeah. So. So, but but yeah, after the. If they're yeah, if 
If they're a main character, you probably Yeah, don't. because generally speaking, I made films with people who wanted to be filmed. Right. I was not one of those people who went in and just knocked on the door and started filming. It's a gotcha. I was not a gotcha kind of... I yeah. mean, I, I just, that wasn't what I wanted to do. What's, you know, listening to uh, the golden years of your work at the NFP, which, which makes me envious, is that you were in an environment where there was the money, where you can just, if you had an idea, you can just, they'd be like, yeah, here's a little bit of dough, go, go explore, go do it. Yeah, well, now, yeah, and, and sometimes it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And you'd say that to them, didn't work out, and they wouldn't say, well, what the fuck, what were you thinking of? No, they just say, okay. But it's not even that. Today, um, I can't, I mean, I, I, I do, no, and I do, and do films ass backwards because I don't like this idea of waiting and writing documentaries, serendipitous, right? It's, 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 it's instantaneous, it's spontaneous. You can't, I can't be writing proposals for two years wanting to do a story that's happening right now. Right. So there's all of this, funding agencies get so frustrated and some producers are like, wait, you know, we got to put the brakes on it. Yeah. You got to wait. I'm like, fucking wait for what? We got to get out there with our camera. I got to shoot. Yeah. Well, you're not going to, you know, then you're at a disadvantage because the broadcaster needs to wait, you know, to fund. The, they don't want to do this as a license. They want this as an acquisition. Yeah. So and, it, that, that, and that was always an issue. Like, even if you, even, I, I mean, I, I rarely did films like you're describing where where it just suddenly happens and mm-hmm. I've got to start shooting that night, okay? I rarely did that. And, and I, mean, I mean, in fact, I don't think I ever did. Like, I certainly might have, cer- certainly might have done it. Like, we're, once, we're the, fil- once the film, once the film, once the film was started, you know, I might have, I quite often said it's going to go this way, and I find no, it's really going to go right. this way, right. and and I would have to make a decision on the spot and and just go with it. Um, but but you've been building relationships and planning for for on various su- on various subjects and participants. Yeah, but you were also mostly shooting on film. There wasn't the technology, the portableness of the technology of today, where you can just take your iPhone ten. And a little no, and no, I mean I, I was shooting on video in the, for the last two or three. But but certainly not with an iPhone, and and um, uh, but but for 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 instance, I, I I made a film about basic training with the Marines, so I mean obviously it was important to, as it is with most films, it's important to figure out the story you want to tell and to get a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. I mean to so uh, the obvious thing there is well you get these these recruits when they're driving there in the middle of the night in a bus and they get off the bus and people start screaming at them. That's where it starts. Mm-hmm. And so you can plan that ahead and there, there, you know, there's going to be several of those in a year and so you, right. you, know, you plan it based on various things. Yeah, but, but the war, the, the, the Israel-Lebanon war, you... Yeah, I mean, that's, you that, that, that I, that's a different... That was totally different. Yeah. So there were situations. When yeah, yeah, there were, there, the there, there were, there were, and and um, and they're they're fun, obviously. They're fun. Um, I always found them great because because also, of course, I mean, it, in you want to be shooting people who are so involved with whatever they're doing that you are insignificant to them. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, that's just basic. Oh, for sure. You, you, you know. And you're getting it in its, in its rawness and its... Your, uh, totally. 
totally and and you want them to be really stretched to the end and and yeah i mean that's that's the stuff of good drama so where do your ideas come from and how do you get satisfaction from your films like when do you feel satisfied that you that you that the film is how you want it um, when do you let go yeah <laughs> well for i mean when you feel you've got a whole story mm-hmm. a beginning middle and end you feel it you know you know the you can you can sense the arc of the story and you know you know you could keep on filming but it's not going to go anywhere that it isn't gone already mm-hmm. so i mean i wouldn't I, I i wouldn't film i would film until i thought i had the story and and i mean sometimes there's just no more story Right. I mean you could go on filming it but there's you're not going to get anything that's any different. And then you go home and start editing, right? Yeah. yeah. On on average how long did it take you to complete a film from beginning? Well, to it's funny. It started it started um I I I I figured I could make a film in 9 months. And 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 if and and but I mean it it stretched as it, you know the films got more complicated. the timelines be got longer so i mean so i i and and because the budget's got bigger i mean that really stretches your time out because you've got to get more players involved and mm-hmm. it just so i mean i think i think for um um my my war film about the the Paris peace conference you know Paris 1919 i think in the on the i think that took almost 5 years because wow. it was a very expensive film and there was a number of people players involved and there was i mean something happened the government changed its rules about foreign participation during during the course of it so we were literally over in Paris ready to start shooting and we were brought back home because uh the government had changed some rules and we no longer were legal what we were doing mm-hmm. so we had to come back wait for something to happen and then went back over 3 or 4 months later stuff like that but that's fiction you did some fiction in that film you uh, went against your rule and uh, oh oh i did it was all acted yeah so you went against your rule of making of making fiction films Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for yeah, I mean I I I did. And and um but I mean it was it was it was just fiction trying to imitate documentary. Right. To tell a story and and the enactments. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh No, I think the closest I came to sort of fiction probably would be Westray and that's not very close to fiction. I mean why why was that why would that one be close to fiction well because i re, i restaged everything oh i see you yeah. know in the explosion of the mine but it was still exactly what happened oh yeah 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 absolutely yeah. but i mean you know you can make a, a a fiction film based on right exactly what happened if you happen to want to right, right. and it's still going to be called a fiction film yeah it may be based on real events or right Do you have any favorite docs yourself or favorite filmmakers, doc filmmakers? Oh, docs? many, many. I mean, god, I've seen so many great I I that you that resonates still when you think Well, I always like the films of Frederick Wiseman. I mean, I always at the best. 
at his best, but I, I mean, probably there's half his films I find unwatchable. Chittagat Follies. Yeah, Chittagat Follies was an amazing film. That was his first film. Hmm. And, um, and there were many other amazing films he made, but then I felt he, he just, I mean, you know, he would make a film like about Aspen, right? I thought Aspen, like three hours of Aspen, of, of these, I mean, even Frederick Wiseman can't make that worthwhile to me. Hmm. Uh, and frankly, I, I, I think um, Ken Burns is an amazing filmmaker. Not, yeah. not all his films, but like his Vietnam film, did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought, man, that's it, a good it film. It boggles my mind the amount of research and documents he must go through. Yeah. That uh, yeah, I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah. He is PBS. He yeah. is PBS, absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, everybody should be so lucky to have him be their masthead. Hmm. Right? I mean, he's the real deal, I think. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who, I have friends in the United States who can't stand him, documentary filmmakers. Right. Of course, because he gets all the money. Right. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's a certain style. It's very encyclopedic. Yes, it's it is. It's, it's, it's classic just, interview encyclopedic. Yeah. Although the Vietnam film was different. True. It was different. True. There was I a little agree. bit of, um, like, I don't want to say heart, but there was something else there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Know, it wasn't just the facts. And, it was and, deeper. And, yeah. and he... I mean, it was really about those people. It was not about yeah. Ken Burns looking at those people. Right. It was a transcendent. It was really yeah. transcendent. Yeah. Uh, series. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's a very complimentary word to use. Um, no, yeah, Ken Burns. You know, seeing. I mean, how do you feel about uh, like a Michael Moore? I mean, Michael Moore. It's, I mean, is it? You can argue. Is it? I, I'm not he, a huge fan of Michael Moore. He very much editorializes what he's doing. Yeah. Right? Because. Yeah. And, and and I'm just not a huge fan of his. That, I feel like that era is kind of gone now, though. All that stuff's oh, on YouTube now. He may, he, that kind, but of, he's, that he kind may, of commentary. It's not, a it's not a film thing anymore. That's an interesting way of looking at it. It's not a film thing anymore, because there's a lot of people that are trying to emulate uh, uh, Michael Moore. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I was interested though. to watch his films. But like when he would do stuff like, you know, we like tried to jump, uh, what was that actor's name? Charlton Heston. Yeah, I thought, for Columbine. Yeah, I mean, I just thought, eh. Of course you're going to make him look like a jerk. Well, what have you proved by that? Right. I mean... When he did Roger, when Roger and me came out, nobody had yeah, ever seen I anything like, like that, right? Nobody had ever seen anything. But that was something that was highly personal to him, like very personal, right? Yeah, yeah. Because he was like an advocate of what had happened in his hometown. Kate, uh, Paul's wife, has stepped in and, and, and her dog Solo is here right in front of me and we're saying hello. Hi. Yeah, adorable. Hey, buddy. Did he just get off a plane? Is that why he's wearing this? No. <laughs> That's what she just said, yeah. Oh, okay. Because he, he, he would, he's got a lesion on his oh, skin. Oh, he's going to be okay? Turn around. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize him to be this friendly when I see him in the park with you. Is he always this friendly with humans, yeah? Uh, he's, he, he, he's, he's a little bit... He's anxious now that he's got that collar on. I don't blame him. Yeah, yeah I don't blame we'll him. Um, they don't like being in situations that they don't understand. Yeah. Don't we all? Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> unless you're unless you're um, a doc documentary filmmaker, and then and, you're, and then you, then you're you, well prepared. Exactly. I, I was going to thrive on it. I was going to ask yeah. you the cliche question of uh, of advice for young filmmakers. I was going to say that too. But you That's kind a big of way to... but he kind of gave it by telling his kind of own story about when you began, yeah. which is you just yeah. sort of you sort of stole a credit card. You went to 
to stole a credit card. Went from France to Italy at twenty. We, we took a van well, well, food. Oh, no, no. Oh. There's one quality oh, you have okay. to have, and that you have you have to be curious. You have to be curious. What does that mean? It means you want to know about stuff. Hmm. You want to know about people. Like if you get in a situation, you're not going to just look at them. You're going to go up and say. Why do you do that? What, right. what is it about this that makes you want to do this? You know, the same kind of stuff agreed, you guys do. Is it you something know, that you can develop or is something just innate, I wonder? Well, I mean, I think if it's innate... It's easier. You know, it's a lot easier. Like, I mean, if, if you're sort of bored by life, I mean, I can't imagine why you'd want to be a filmmaker. Yeah. Why, why would you want to go out and capture boredom? Right. Um, so if you're bored by life, you have to fix that problem first yeah, before you become so. a filmmaker. I would think so. But I mean, most filmmakers are not bored by life. Yeah. It's, you know, it's daunting. When you, when, if you write a, today write a business plan about mm -hmm. making docs or a doc company, about 15% of people are making a living making documentaries. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very difficult... As much as they're very popular, especially true crime documentaries, yes, yes. Uh, it's still very difficult. We've had this discussion many yeah, times, yeah. how to make how to find the money to make films. Yeah. And there's a lot of great films that never find their audience nowadays. Yes, t certainly true. I mean, go to film festivals and you'll see so many films and you say, whoa, how yeah. come that didn't get on TV yeah. or something? T TV being sort of the gold standard when it's really not. No, right. it's not. It's not, no. but but it does, it's a different world out there now. It's but but it's, it's, you know, it's basically still the same thing showing people something they've never seen before. And that's no different from drama or their documentary. I mean, you know, you have, to, you have to give them something they've never seen before and make them feel something they haven't felt before and about something that they didn't think they cared about. Right. And, and, and you better feel all those things and have that, that interest. I mean, Are you still making docs? And if you're not, is what, will, what, would, what would pull you back in to do maybe one last film? Oh... I you know look I mean I guess if 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 the story was just so extraordinary yeah what's an extraordinary story that would bring you back in as a filmmaker well if he knew that he'd be doing it well maybe he has an, well, he an idea uh, well he might have seen it and said I want to make that film no I mean like you don't come across those every day I I I mean no I mean I, I, well. I mean, you can think of a million of them. I mean, I mean, all of the stuff that's going on now in the in the world. I mean, oh if you if you could get inside that, it's it's a story. It's a great story, but but it's not enough. But it's a beginning. But but no, I I think actually there there is more access than there's ever been before. Um, there's more risk than there's ever been before. Like I'm, I'm totally blown away by all these filmmakers who are in all these danger zones. Like all you got to do is turn on the, the the news every night and see these people in 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 Ukraine. It's I wild. Mean, we we initially had at some point early on in the in the war, there was a, a Hasidic uh, mission, um, uh, kind of a messianic. Orthodox Hasidic Jews in or in Ukraine right. that were on the front lines yeah. and weren't weren't leaving and they had like a guard and we had access we were, had access to go yeah. and we were like we were like no nah, we're gonna get blown up I don't think we want to go and maybe we should have run well yeah we had access through 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 oh thank you thanks so much Kate thank you through Chabad we had too? access through Chabad do you want one too we had access through Chabad to go oh that would yeah I we mean, didn't go we chickened out.
I mean, I would certainly not go today to do the, the Congo. I wouldn't do it. But I did it when I was young and stupid. Thank you so much. Do you want to want to contribute anything about? Uh, about we're talking being to, to a filmmaker? yeah, we're talking to Kate. Kate is uh, Paul's wife. Kate's also a, a former CBC uh, personality reporter, host. Personality, personality yeah. doesn't was, begin I, to do it. I was an announcer and a, a jazz, mostly a jazz host. I did different shows over the years, but mostly a jazz host. Um, I, I know that the reason that Paul is such a good filmmaker is that he's really naturally curious about, about things he hasn't experienced. He wants to know what it's like to be a coal miner in Nova Scotia or, you know, to, to go into, uh, to, to become a, a marine recruit. What's it like to go through basic training? It, it sort of gives him, now you tell me if I'm wrong. No, right? I think but, you're absolutely right. But, I mean, but yeah. uh, it gives him a chance to do things that he would never otherwise do. Um, and, and, and I remember when uh, he was making films for a series about automobiles, which the film board did in conjunction with Radio Canada, right? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he went down to the shock trauma unit in Baltimore where they were doing, because he wanted to do a film about car uh, crashes, like, you know, with cars there are accidents. And... Uh, the safety tests. Well, they're safety tests, but then the real crash test dummies are the guys who end up with a piece of a phone pole embedded in their head, which he filmed, you know, and he said, and I know that in many ways Paul is quite squeamish, but he said, when I go into the operating room and they're doing uh, brain surgery on some poor schmo who didn't wear his helmet and drove his motorcycle drunk, if I'm seeing it through a viewfinder, it's okay. I couldn't go in and just watch them do that, but because the camera's like a, like a, uh, a filtering experience, it's a layer of separation. It's a layer of separation. It's in a way, it's like for him, even though it's happening live in front of him, he's seeing it through, he's seeing it as though it were already a movie. It's just that he's making the movie. Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, but you have the post-trauma when you leave that, though. I've had experiences when I made films on child murders, and I'm like, you're in it because you're separate because you're directing it. And then you leave and you're like, holy fuck, what was that? You have that experience too, right? Not you much. Might... Not much. <laughs> Seriously, not it's just much. You, I know when you were in the Congo, you you at some point came into a little village that had just been sort of yeah. uh, massacred, and there was a, a little dead girl yeah. in a hut. And Paul found that very disturbing. Like, um, like yeah, I mean, the the rebels had just gone through, and and we came across this little hut, like it's totally dark, and, and somebody told us there's a woman in there with her child who just was killed. And I said, can I film it? And they said, go and ask her. And, and so I just walked in there. There's the child lying on a, just a wooden bench, and her entrails are spread out across her chest. And mother is sitting sitting there weeping over the, the the child. 
And I really, that was the worst thing for me. I had to ask her if I could film it. And I, she said, okay, and I did. But I'm, I, I, I'm not sure that I didn't cross some line there. I mean, as it, as it turned out, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's those, you, you have to kind of make that decision at the moment. Like, do I go in there or I don't go in there? You're telling the story of the, of the horribleness of war. Then. Yeah, well, that's what it seems like. I mean, you can certainly tell yourself that at the, at the moment. I'm sure, I'm sure I probably did. But part of you is still saying, can I use your dead child to show people what war is like? Yeah. Which she might say that's a noble cause, but it's still her dead child. Yeah. And, and the fact is, I mean, I had enough experience from people in shock trauma. And in, in shock trauma, just it's, it's this hospital uh, where literally if the president was, was in a life-threatening situation, that's where they take him. And, and so people, people are brought in there, you know, on the edge of life. And, and uh, it, was, it was during a summer when uh, there's a lot of people out at night driving, driving drunk. And, and there was no helmet law in, in uh, Maryland at that moment. So you got a lot of serious head traumas. And you could actually drive with a drink, with an open can of beer in your car. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, really yeah. liberal. So, there, I mean, every night, I mean, I, they'd start coming in at 10 o'clock and they'd still be coming in at 6 o'clock in the morning. And, and, and I'd have to film every one. I never knew... Like which one of these was going to work out? I, I didn't. I, I knew something about it. I knew this was a motorcycle accident, or or was a shooting, or was what? And and uh, I would just start filming as soon as they got off the helicopter or out of the ambulance. And I obviously didn't ask them. I asked. I mean, the hospital knew about it, right. and the, and the doctors knew about it, but I couldn't ask them. So I would just. I filmed everything and, and then chose, I think, six people whose accident and who they were as people would Because I, what I wanted to film was what happened to them in the next year or so of their lives. Uh, this, this, was the, this was the cutting edge trauma unit, where you're basically where you're yeah. dealing with like the worst of the worst. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the, 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 uh, entry point for victims at, at this at this hospital was was back where the dumpster was. I don't know why. They, anyway, that's the way it worked out. So, and it's where where the doctors would go to have a smoke or something as they're waiting or, or just taking a break. And so everybody's sitting around, kind of everybody's loose, and and I'm there and the crew's there, and and so this ambulance pulls in very slowly, no big rush, no bells and whistles. The, the guys get out, open the door, you know, pull the stretcher out, and there's a, there's a, a person there. And, and the surgeon that, that I had been filming, that I'm closest to, he's standing there, and he goes over and looks at this person, and he starts yelling. He just starts yelling all the codes you know, that says, this is life or death. He sees something that even the ambulance guys didn't see. And so all of a sudden, everybody goes into action, right? They're jumping around, running around. They, a person gets on top of him and, you know, giving him um, 
pumping his chest and, and, you know, got a mask over his face and, and, and they're running down the hallways, right? And, and, and in this particular hospital, it, it's unfortunate, but you actually have to take an, amp, uh, 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 an elevator up to the, the operating theaters from the entrance. So, and, and they've got a way of getting it done. Anyway, by the time uh, this went, so I had one role and I had a brand new role in the camera, fortunately. So I had 11 minutes of film. Before that film ran out, that person was dead. And she went from being no big deal, got hit, by, got, got hit by a car, in fact, right in front of the hospital where she was going. So they didn't have far to take her. But the, the, but the, 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 the technicians didn't think there was anything particularly wrong with her. She was breathing and talking, whatever. And, and uh, anyway, this surgeon saw it and, and knew that it was, it was life or death, and it was death before, before that film ran out. And, and it was just so amazing. I mean, we couldn't use it at length in the film because, you, you know, you can't show 11 minutes of yelling and screaming. But, but it went from peace to death like that. Amazing. And uh, that, that, whew, that got to me. That's another thing about documentary filmmaking. You're not just, uh, you're, you're not telling a story in a sense. You're, you're actually experiencing it at the same time. Yeah. Um, tell more stories. Mm -hmm. well, one thing I will say that I think is, is uh, this is based on my knowledge from having been married to this man for next month, it'll be 40 years, is that there's no malice. There is no, um, he's curious, but he's not a voyeur. It's not like, oh, wow, this is going to be so cool. Uh, which is just, it's, it's just who he is. It's not, um, but I think it really informs how he makes his films is that uh, he's, he's honestly curious in a kind of, not childish way, but a sort of childlike way. Like, let me see what is... What is it really like to be, you know? But there's no sense of, wow, maybe I can manipulate this so that it'll be a little more um, uh, sensational, sensational. A little, a little sensational. Yeah. Oh, be quiet, you silly boy. So uh, Paul, Paul's not prone to sensationalism. No, no, no. I, no, I, I would much prefer to get a moment of truth. Like there was a great moment of truth when I was. When I was filming the Marines, I was with this one drill instructor who was a real hard ass. I mean, and he had seen bad stuff. And, and, uh, and he's describing, I believe he was describing a car accident, which he had seen, which, he's, which he was sort of saying, I've seen stuff like that I didn't see in war. And as he's telling it, there's a fly. And just at a moment, he's like that, and he got it. And he didn't even break his speech. It was like, it was like, a, like a viper snake or something, just got it. And, and, I, and he was just this lean, mean guy. I mean, not mean. Killing machine. Not mean, he was just, he, he, he was just, he was, he was quite amazing. 
And I, and I, you know, so every once in a while you see a moment like that. And just, no. <laughs> these moments of serendipity. Well, just, just, just that he was talking about death and what he felt about it, and then... Just snuffed out a life just like that. You, you know, and he was just, he was so quick and, and, and so perfect. Hmm. It just... Did it make it in the film? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, those are what are they, they call magic moments. And sometimes, I mean, it's not profound in the way that sometimes things can be profound. It's just perfect in that moment. It's just a perfect, you know, like if that's what you, if you were, if you were a good feature film director and shooting that, that scene, you might do that, yeah. <laughs> right? It, it would be Robert Duval. Yeah, it was it's like, Robert. I can't believe that was not scripted. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. It was hard when, when, uh, when the kids were young, Paul would often be gone for like three or four weeks at a time. I was wondering about that. That was, that was hard, but, uh, but he was always very good at keeping in touch. Uh, and he's well, easier now, obviously, than it yeah. was. Yeah, in those days. I mean, yeah. we're talking, you know, 35 years ago when the kids were little. But, oh, before, even before we were married, I guess it was the summer of 82, uh, Paul had gone across to Israel to make a film about the Israeli army. Oh, I told them about Oh, you told them about Yeah, but you didn't tell it from my point of view. Mm -hmm. I'm at home. Uh, and when, when uh, Israel invaded Lebanon, I thought, oh good, well now he's going to come home because they're not going to take him into, you know, they're not going to take him into a war situation. Oh, well. And he called <laughs> me up and he was so thrilled. He said, guess what? I'm going to... Major Stashak Aronson is going to take me... To a war situation. Into a, yeah, into Lebanon on a tank. No. And it was kind of, and I thought, like, holy fuck. I thought, how... How could I ever? How could we get married if you get killed? That Paul, was that was my first Paul, selfish thought, right? Right, Paul. What are you doing? What do you? Yeah. Yeah. So, that's right. Then, that's when it was. Yeah, we weren't married. We weren't married. That's and, right. And uh, and that's when I started really sleeping badly. And sometimes he would call me, like the phone would ring at two in the morning, and uh, his the host, the his his talking head was Gwyn Dyer who's, you know, a great war journalist and knows all, you know. And Paul would call me and say, oh, it's really great what we're doing now. We're, we're, uh, we just got through shooting a stand-up in this field, and just as we were finished, Stashek Aronson was saying, come back, that's a minefield. So they'd gone down to shoot a stand-up, well, it was in an area where there was a number of, of tanks that had been hit. You know, they were blackened, they had caught fire, they were still smoking. Great visuals. And, and, and we, had, we had gone down into this little valley. I mean, there was no human beings there. They had, the front had moved on. Hmm. And, um, and Stashik stayed up on the road, right? And, and, and at a certain point, he's yelling at us, and of course... We just keep filming because we're pretending we don't hear him. <laughs> but you start, you start shooting his gun. In southern Lebanon. And yeah, yeah, in he Lebanon. He's saying, get out of there, it's a minefield. Yeah, so. So he's telling me this, and he's all excited. He's yeah. like, this is so cool. <laughs> well, there was a time, actually, when I was in Kosovo once, 
So, and, and there had been a lot of fighting there. And so, and I, this was an interesting dilemma, again, which would make a, an interesting scene in the drama. So we're walking down this narrow path where we knew there had been action, right? And, and, and at a certain point, the path splits. There's a crude sign written on, on a piece of wood with, with a stake stuck in the ground. And the sign, the sign had an arrow on it, and it was written, mine. And I'm thinking, I come to that, and I'm thinking, either that means the mine's that way, or it means it's that way. They want you to, they want you to go that way, but that's, that's, where, where, the that's where the mine is, right? And Sam, so anyway, what do you do? I think we went with the arrow. But I wasn't sure, and I, you know, for all I knew, that was a sign that had been put there two months ago or whatever. You had been filming during the Balkan War. Well, it was, it was, it wasn't. No, it wasn't during the Balkan War. It was a kind of more localized fight between rebels and the government, of which those go on all the time. And did you know uh, Gwyndar? Did you know him well? I'm not sure if I'd say I knew him well. I mean, I went on some shoots with him, and he was very hard to work with. I uh, we have it's I we have a, he there's well, a lot. I mean, you're you're older than I. You've made much more than I. Sorry, I, I my mentor. Well, early on was Pietro Sarapilia. So Pietro, who you may know. Oh, I know. Sure, of Peter. Of course, Peter Peter Sarapilia. Uh, Peter Serra, we used to. Peter Serra. Yeah. He had some. He started as a production. He never became a director, but he was a producer at. A, well, he was a production assistant at the NFB, and and he was on. Was he a production assistant on War? Because he has some very funny stories about Gwyn Dyer on War. Uh, I think he stories. did something with Kathy Mullins in, in Europe. In, in the Europe stuff, he yeah. would tell me that that Gwyn Dyer would like just be drinking all night. All night. He'd yeah. just be drinking all night, like totally like an alcohol functioning alcoholic. I think he was an alcoholic, and and then he would get on the in the field wherever the field was, and he and he either couldn't remember his lines or he hadn't even written them. And, and <laughs> Peter would tell a funny story, like they'd, they'd be worried about him. He'd be drinking like at the hotel all night in, I don't know, in like in France. And he'd, he'd show up on set, like they'd drive him to the, to the location and he'd be like hammered. And they were terrified, like they were going to lose another day. And Pietro would do this little shtick where he'd, he'd, Quindar would be like in the field, the cameras would be rolling, he'd go like this. In 1942, He'd be able to just pull off. Yeah, he would just slide into character yeah. entirely, like on the spot after being like a lush for the last twelve hours. Yeah. It was hysterical the way you tell that story. I guess don't be, be a filmmaker. Don't be a historian. <laughs> so you had him in. His, he was with you in Israel. Uh, yes. Okay, well, yes. He's still around. He's still alive. He lives in England. Yeah, he's still alive. I don't believe he's. I don't believe he's working. I mean, he, he long ago was no longer writing his column. Um, uh, we're digressing a lot. Um, yes, yeah, I, I have to go down and pick up my car. Actually, okay. from yeah. a, that's we, a good. That's a good. Our, our half hour turned into two hours. Yeah, which is great. I knew it was going to happen. So, I knew yeah, Paul. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much. Kate, pleasure. thank you so much. Oh, greatly appreciated. Yeah, good. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Nobody knows you walk around the, the fitness uh, the health club, and nobody knows your your story. Maybe it's because too many people ask you to to make their movies. They pitch you ideas on the spot, and you. That's why you don't tell anybody that you're a director. No. 
But it's yeah. also because because Paul doesn't like to be in the center of the action. He wants to be filming the action. Yeah, I'm very happy to be a fly on the wall. Director. Very Perfect. happy. Yeah. And that's another, you know, you ask, well, what qualities do you need? Well, you know, I think that's one of them. I mean, you know, there are some, like Michael Moore, who aren't flies on the wall, but, but for the most part, you're a fly on the wall. Okay, but you, oh, we, we want to wrap it. Come on, you've been in situations where you're doing an interview and someone's like very keen to be a participant, to, to be candid and give you their story, and then it's just crap, it's rehearsed. Don't you ever go, this is just, okay, I'm turning the camera off until you get real with me, this is nonsense. You've never done anything like that? Oh no, I've, I've, this, I've, this is I've, you we're talking about. I've it. certainly, <laughs> I've certainly felt. No, no, I, I've rarely felt that because, as I said, I spend so much time with the people before I turn right. the camera on, that they don't, they're, they're not going to get. They've long gone past that. Right. That's a good that's point. A, that's a good piece of advice, Paul. I'm going to. That is a good ball. piece. I'm going to use it. I think Evan sometimes is he's so eager to get in there with the camera that the people are not primed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was great, eh, Evan? It was terrific. I think we have a we, we have a world we have a world world class podcast. I knew yeah. he was not going to do half. He's like, oh, it's only half. He told me yeah, only half an hour, <laughs> but I knew he'd do more than half an hour. Yeah. I think we should break it into two episodes. Some great stuff. You're like Evan. This is not the way. It's good that you're sort of. It's what did fine. I do? No, just like you see, Evan. You don't have to be in. You don't have to always oh, try to create yeah. collisions. It's great. Yeah. I love it. It works. Sometimes you can just let stuff happen. What are you selling yourself so short? Sort of I'm his. What did you call yourself? Cameraman. Come on, man. Would you stop it? Co-writer, camera editor. Yeah, it's inspiring to listen to the stories and uh, it's a different, uh, it's a different world. I also like hearing about kind of the the history of films in Canada too, because you know it's most film lore is out of the United States, and so you hear a little bit about how the industry developed differently in Canada. I mean, he's really at the at the forefront of the beginning. I mean, the NFPs from the, from the from the 40s, but he was in it at the time in the 60s, which is really in some ways that it's uh you know it's golden it's golden years yeah the golden years that'll never return oh it'll never it'll never be it'll never be like that again 900 people working at the national film board yeah no kidding it's kind of like a blank check i've been in i've been in that place once or twice i don't remember what for and it was uh i think on a on a work day it's very quiet it's a very quiet place. It's very modern. It's very quiet. I've spent a lot of time there. I've had connections in the, mostly in the distribution department. Yeah. So I've had meetings about projects, about pitching, about. It doesn't out seem how. like the bustling kind of place that Not he's at all. describing. Not at all. I've spent more time at the National Film Board location on on, um, on um, Saint Denis. Oh, they have showing, one there. Yeah, showing oh, okay. showing my films there. Okay. Showing my films there. Uh, kind of a cute theater. There's, and that theater is also used for film festivals. Okay. I think it's a cinema. It's called it's a Cinematheque. I'm yeah, they have they have a big sign. NFB Cinematheque. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. At some point, I just gave up on uh, on uh, trying to approach the NFB about projects. I just yeah. It seemed it just seemed impossible. Yeah. So we find other ways. Let's wrap up the podcast. What can we say to wrap it up? If you like this, the show, if, if you, you like, like this, pop, please, please pass. Please watch more. Please so share pass and the word uh, pass the word around. To bring you great content. We sure are. And access. Oh yeah. So please. Uh, Good word. Spread the word. Spread the word, and we'll spread the love. <laughs>
And please listen to Let's Not Be Lazy Filmmakers Amen. podcast. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.